Hey everyone, welcome back to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge where I have with me actor Tom Gibbis, who is primarily known for his voice roles in anime, including Shikumaru Naru from Naruto and Boruto, Mushra from Shinzo, Michael from Digimon Adventure 2, Jinai and Jairo Chono from Busho Rusko, I think, and Takumi Nofumi from Honey and Clover, to name a few. So thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm a big Naruto fan. A lot of people know you for Naruto, but you've been professionally acting since the 1990s. And I don't think people realize that you've been at this for a long time. And so I'm very curious how you initially got into acting and what really was the inspiration of that entire interest and then career starting up. When I was a kid, you know, I always thought wouldn't would be great to be an actor as a little kid. That didn't seem like a real job because nobody we knew was an actor. And you see people in the movies and on TV, and that just seemed like a whole nother planet far, far away. And at one point, I wanted to be a forest ranger growing up. And it was funny because I would still do plays and theater and stuff when I was in school, junior high and high school and stuff. And I was also going on the track of being like a forest ranger. That was kind of an ideal that I wanted to do. Then I found out as you go through forestry stuff that when you go to college for forestry, it's a lot of math because they do things like if a tree has so many seeds and how many seeds can expect to be germinated and that will turn into forest densities and stuff like that. And it's very heavy math. You know, here I was thinking biology is heavy in math too, but which is another thing. And then I found out that the U.S. Forest Service only hires four rangers a year. And I went, I think I could be an actor. I think I beat those odds. And then the nice thing about being an actor is you don't have to pick a job. You're every job. You can be a plumber or a doctor or a lawyer or a ninja, whatever that might be. And so I just kind of then really just focused on the acting part of it. And when I went to college, I went to Mankato State is what it was called when I was there. Now it's called Minnesota State Mankato. I graduated with an acting and directing degree. And I just kind of went all in on that. And I really enjoyed it. That was my calling. Like, that's what I always wanted to do. And I felt like I was pretty good at it and I was getting sort of recognition for it. So I was getting a lot of signs that were saying, this is something you should pursue and you should go for. So I did that. And then I graduated from college and I did an internship at the Children's Theater Company of Minneapolis. And then I did a, a national tour for the Children's Theater Company of Minneapolis. And they're like a world renowned theater company. They're not just four guys in a van. When you think of children's theater, a lot of people think of like, you know, we got our overalls and we're going to go out. And this was like they did major productions. And then in Minneapolis, this is where I'm from, from Minnesota. And I did things like the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, which is, again, a renowned regional theater in Minneapolis. And I worked at a comedy place called Dudley Riggs Brave New Workshop, which is one year older than Second City in Chicago, if you're familiar with. Second City's got more of a name than the Brave New Workshop does, but a lot of writers came out of the Brave New Workshop. People like Al Franken, Louis Anderson came out of the Brave New Workshop. Recently, there's been a few others like Cedric Yarborough. I don't know if you know him. He's on Speechless and he does Boondocks too. He's a voice on Boondocks. And then uh, Melissa Peterman, she's been on Baby Daddy and Reba and a bunch of other sitcoms. People that I've all worked with too and kind of came up with. And Mo Collins from Mad TV as well. All came out of this Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis was like a comedy theater type of thing situation. So I came out to Los Angeles from 1995-ish, something like that, to kind of pursue acting. And then I did a bunch of co-stars, little parts in movies and TV and stuff like that. I always wanted to get into voiceover and I always wanted to do cartoons. And when you're a little kid, your big dream is work for Disney and then do cartoons. And the third would be to have your own action figure. So again, 
three things very nice when you're a kid and you think of what is acting. I got to do it. So it was 95. I had a friend of mine who had a friend. His name was Jeff Nimoy. So it was a friend of a friend. And he was working on Digimon. And he was directing and writing episodes of Digimon. And I ran into him at a party or something. And I was like, oh, so you're working on Digimon? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I said, I always thought I'd be good at that. Is there any chance I could get to audition or try it out? And he basically said to me, he goes, do you have any experience? And I said, well, no. I mean, I've done a lot of acting stuff, but I've never worked doing voiceover or worked on mic or anything like that. And he's like, well, I can't really use you because you don't have any experience. And I was like, okay. Well, how do you go about getting experience? You know, give me a little part, something, anything. And he was just like, yeah, it's so hard to train in new people and it's just a big pain. So he said, no. Anyway, every time I saw him at a party, I would just kind of needle him a little bit and say, hey, you know, put me in something. I'll even do it for nothing. Just let me come in and that kind of thing. And he's like, nah, I I can't do that. Eventually, this friend of mine, the friend of a friend, he got called in to audition for Jeff. Now, this friend of mine, we had worked comedy together. We were doing stuff, improv and things, and he didn't have any experience doing voiceover work either. So I kind of called Jeff Nimoy and I said, hey, you're bringing in John over here. He doesn't have any experience. So can I come in and audition for this as well? And they were doing Digimon the movie at that time. And Nimoy says, okay, fine. (laughs) I'll have you come in. And so I went in and I auditioned and he had brought in a bunch of his friends and people that I knew in the actor community from Minnesota and from L.A. And uh, all those people, the producers liked me. Of course, came the question, have you ever done this before? Do you have any experience? And I said, no, I don't. I was very honest. There's some people that would say you should just lie. But I'll tell you, if you go into a session, whatever the situation is in acting, if you say, can you ride a horse? And it's like, you bet I can. And you show up on set day one and you don't know how to ride a horse, you're in trouble. You've now burned bridges rather than thinking that you've helped your own career. You're going to really anger some people who are trying to do something and they don't have the time to teach you how to ride a horse or do rope tricks or ride a unicycle or juggle or whatever you're claiming or think you can learn within the time you get cast to the time that first shoot is. And the same thing is true with voiceover work. And at that time, this was dubbing. So basically, most Japanese animation is done originally in Japan first. The English part of it comes later. The animation is already completed. So you can see your character. You can see like if they're screaming or angry or happy or sad. You kind of get a lot of cues from that and then you get the script. And you're basically then making it for an English speaking audience. It's not a strict translation. If you ever read any of the manga or if you ever watch it in Japanese, you realize there's a big difference between a strict translation and then sort of what we tend to do is write it to make it fit and make it sound a little bit more natural. Otherwise, it's very choppy and it doesn't sound the way people talk. So what we have to do is kind of rewrite it for an American audience. So at that time, you basically would have to get it right. They'd give you a certain amount of flaps. That's the mouth movement. And it'd be like you have three seconds and you have to say, quick, let's go. Quick, let's go. And you do the voice or whatever you're going to do. And it's like, no, that was two and a half seconds. They go, stretch it. And they go, quick, let's go. No, not. So you had to get it. You had to hit it. And it could take 20, 30 takes and just repeating the same line over and over and over again until you got the timing just the way they needed it. And then they could match up the sync and do it. Nowadays, it's completely different. So anybody coming up now, have no fear. This is not part of the job. Because what they do today is they have a thing called Pro Tools. And Pro Tools is a computer program that you can move it forward, move it back. You can speed it up a hair, slow it down a hair. They find if they do too much tweaking, it doesn't work. So you'll have to re-record a line. But basically, if you deliver the line and you're in the ballpark if you came in just a hair early they can just move it up or move it back or whatever it needs to be done and this makes this job 
so much easier. So when I first started, I admitted that I didn't know how to do dubbing. So they said, well, we can't really use it for this project, which was Digimon the movie at the time. And they said, but what we'd like to do is we're doing Digimon the series. So we'd like to have you do a couple episodes of that. And you can work with Jeff. We'll get you up to speed. And if that works out, we might have some other opportunities at the company. And it was Saban Entertainment at the time. So I did my couple of episodes. Jeff kind of showed me the ropes and away we went. Then from there, I got Shinzo. And they basically said, audition for it. And they said, you'd be the lead. And that would be, you know, like 35 episode series, something like that. So how we'll do it is we're going to record three episodes. If you're doing okay, if we can get you up to speed, if you're not doing 100 takes per line, if you can get it down to like 20. They had like a thing. If you could do 20 loops an hour, I think it was at that time, you were in the ballpark. And then they said, if it's going well, we'll keep you on. And if it's not, we'll just hire another actor at that point. And I was like, okay. So they put me in with this director, Michael Sorich, who's also an actor, voiceover actor, does a lot of stuff. And he was great. And he was really the guy who showed me the ropes. Nimoy gave me the opportunity and he gave me the break and he also kind of helped get me going. And then Michael Sorich was the one who was the sensei. He really honed it in. And next thing I know was we were like five or six episodes in and I was like, I guess they're not going to fire me. So I guess we're doing okay. And we just kept going. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, what was that like really not having any experience of getting to cut your teeth on Digimon and Shinzo and really learn the ropes? Because following those, it kind of folded out from there. We're going to talk about those roles in a little bit. But what was that entire experience like really getting hands-on experience? Because that's really what voice acting is in many ways. It was a challenge. Those early stuff, you kind of get a love sort of hate relationship with it. I was so happy to be there and I'm so happy to have this opportunity and And I think the nice thing for me was the acting was something I didn't have to think about. I could hone into a character. That part, I never got a note on really anything like that. It was all technical. It was learning that technical side. And so therefore, it was very kind of nerve wracking. Go into these sessions, a lot of the pronunciations are Japanese, and then they would write the line that was too long and it wouldn't fit, and you're just trying to make it fit. And the next thing you know, you spent 15, 20 minutes doing one little line that they ended up rewrite the line to make it work for you. But you waste a lot of time. And so I'm thinking, oh my God, this is going to kill me. They're going to fire me. So there's a lot of those kind of insecurities. But Nimoy was great. And then I got to say, Michael Sorich made it fun. He was really like, don't worry about it. We're going to get this. Hey, this one's not your fault. It's the way they wrote it. We'll do this. And he was very supportive and very encouraging and really helped me get up to speed. Now, I think I had that in me and therefore I was able to learn pretty quick and I was able to catch on and that was great. And like I say, today, new people coming in, that's a totally different situation. Really, the only thing you have to worry about coming in now is your acting chops. There is some technique like being on the mic and knowing how to work inside the booth and things like that, but those are all minor. Those are all little things you can pick that up there's nothing crazy there and also sort of getting used to the sound of your own voice because you don't walk around with headsets on listening to your voice very often so sometimes when you hear sound in the speaker you're sort of like oh is that what it sounds like it's not quite right it throws you off a little bit because what you think you're doing and what you're doing are completely two different things and so you have to kind of adjust for that but again i think having the acting chops and the improv chops that i had really helped especially with improv improv was great because the nice thing about improv is you get a suggestion and you take a character and you go. And then you're able to just plow into that character. You don't have to think about it too much. And so that's the nice thing for auditions. They say, 
10-year-old little boy. Okay, let's go, sir. And you can just, okay, now that's the voice I'm going to use. Now let's discover that a little more. It helps you make decisions right away. I think it's key in this industry because they don't have a lot of time to coach you up. They don't have a lot of time to sit in the booth and go, well, that's not quite the voice. You know, we, we like the quality of your voice, but we need it to be a little this or a little that. No, they want you to come in and hit the ground running. And in a lot of ways, when you do an audition, based on what they give you to read for the audition, you're going to put your best spin on it. This is my best take at it. And what they'll do is they'll listen to that take and they aren't going to go like, oh, he's got a lot of experience and we like his voice, but we didn't quite like the read. No, they're just going to go to the guy who got it the way they thought it should be to begin with. And you have no idea. There could be 20 guys out there and they all doing it the same way because they all got the same material. And then one guy just did it a little different and they go, oh, we kind of like that. That's different. That's interesting. And that's who they cast. But you don't know. You have no way of keying in on what they're looking for or anything. So for the most part, when you audition, you just throw it to the wind and you audition for a thousand things, or at least you hope you get to audition for a thousand things. And then one or two of them hit. And then next thing you know, you're working. So that's great. And usually if you're working, most of the jobs I've had, it's been because I worked on one show and then somebody else got hired as an engineer on another show and they brought me over so the director could hear me. And it was like that kind of thing. And I've been on a lot of auditions too, where they brought me in like they needed a voice match, like an actor fell out or something. So you come in and you go, well, I can't really do this guy's voice. Because first of all, my voice is very high and it's not like your standard male voice. When I'm on the phone, people think I'm a woman all the time. So anyway, for the many of roles that I have, which I don't think I have that many, if you look at other people in the industry, they really work. I kind of work. And it's funny because I feel like it's very frustrating why you get cast or why you don't get cast. But I'll tell you, for every role you get, there's probably 250, 300 auditions that you don't get. But I don't obsess about that. Now I can do it from home pretty much, which is great. I'll get an email. It'll say the role. Can you audition for this? We're sending it out to all guys. And then they give you like a character description. And then it'll give you a couple of lines. I go to my garage band on my Apple computer and I record a couple of lines, send it in, and then I never think about it again. And you really can't, because if you think about it, you'll go crazy, because you're not going to get most of them. So you just try and do the best you can, try and give them the best shot at it that you can, and hopefully it'll hit. And then every once in a while, they'll go, great, can you come in on Tuesday? I think even with Naruto, they had a big audition for Naruto. They were calling in everybody in town, and I had never heard of the show, didn't hear of the books or anything. And I went in, and there was all these people there, and I was like, wow, are they calling all these people in for this? And they're like, oh, yeah, this is huge, man. This is going to be a big, big thing. And I was like, really? And I went in and I read for three different roles. I read for Naruto. I read for Choji. And I read for Shikamaru Nara. And I really kind of thought Choji was my wheelhouse. Like I thought, oh, yeah, the sort of chubby kid. I kind of had an idea like, oh, I could do that. This is me. This is very much a character that could be very easy for me to do. The original Shikamaru, I kind of did him a little bit more surfer. Like, yeah, whatever, man. You know, like that. And which we kind of got out of a little bit, but I just didn't think that was me. I never was the cool kid. If you're going to do a series, it's nice to play something that's kind of close to yourself or what you can play. And I felt Choji was right down the middle for me, but they didn't want me for Choji. They wanted me for Shikamaru. Yeah, let's talk about that because Shikamaru, he's lazy and he's the cool guy and he's very practical. He's very calm. His voice is lower than your voice or your natural voice. So what was that mentality coming into Shikumaru and really understanding him and what he does and where he's going all throughout Naruto? Well, the nice thing is 
when we started with Shikamaro, he was 10 years old, 12 years old. So it was like, whatever, what a drag. So it was a little higher. I just did that raspy voice thing as a way of kind of like, uh, he's kind of cool. And it was sort of mixed with a surfer dude. Like, yeah, whatever, man. That was sort of my original take on it. But it used to bother me. Like, he's the lazy ninja. Like, what are you talking about, lazy? He's not lazy. He just does as little as possible. He figured out every angle. Like, that takes a lot of work to figure out how to be non-productive. And a little bit, I was a little bit like that in school myself. I would do the bare minimum in a class to get a passing grade, right? I'd be like, oh, wait, if I do the paper, I'll get an A. But if I don't do the paper at the end of the class, I'll get a C plus or a B minus. And they're like, yeah. And I go, great, I'm not doing the paper. I still pass the class, right? I was a horrible student and I shouldn't have done that. I was calculating everything. If I get three more points, I'll pass the class. I'm out of here. Of course, I never quite put it all together that that affects you later when you try and go to college and you have really poor grades. And for me, if you looked at my high school record, it was math, science, I'd get B's and C's, and then like choir, Shakespeare, mythology, journalism, straight A's, political science, history, because it was nothing for me. It was so easy for me. And then the other stuff, I just wasn't interested. So therefore, I was a slacker, which I can tap into that guy, except, you know, he's far smarter than I am. It's funny, when we're in the booth, I'm reading along because I don't read ahead of books. I'm in the booth, something's happening, and I'll say, we're going to do this. Sort of play a guessing game, having not read ahead. And sometimes, because I know him so well now, I'm right. I go, oh, that's a trap, or that's going to be a trick. I can see it coming in. So that's cool. So he's sort of rubbed off on me a little bit, and I feel like I can sort of second guess what move he's going to make and stuff, because I've played the character for so long. And speaking about that, because one of the interesting things, and I think a lot of people know this, but when you're in the booth, you're alone. But Shikamaru is part of a team, Inno and Choji, and they're all very much close. Their parents were close. And in Naruto, without spoiling too much, it's been a generational thing. And Kalei Noshaganaki was on the podcast. Robbie Rist was on the podcast. So what is that like to understand their voices? Because you've worked with, I think, Colleen before on a few times and you've worked with her after and during Naruto on a few other shows. So what is that like to yeah. hear their voices? And even though they're not in the booth, you have to be somewhat cognitive of what they sound like. Because we've been doing so long, sometimes when you go in the booth, they've already recorded and you're the last voice to enter the course. And that's nice because you can hear how Choji does his line. If you're the first one to record, you only hear the Japanese. So then you're laying it down first. So you don't know. You're like, this is what I'm going to do. So if you're mad or your intensity is a little higher, they're going to match that intensity. And then other times you come in and Colleen's already already laid down her track or Robbie's already laid down his track. So you can actually hear that he's very kind with this line. He's trying to calm you down. So you then know how to respond. It's like it's already completed. And that's great because you hear the English and you see the picture and you can then adapt your acting of it to that. Again, it depends on when you go in to record. I'll come in 10 minutes before my session and then Robbie's coming out. And it's like, hey, man, what's up? And we're like cordial, but I don't know if he could pick me out in a lineup. He'd be like, oh, yeah, I've seen that guy in the studio. And then they'd say, oh, that's Shikamaru. And you'd be like, oh, man, he's probably better than that. But we haven't really had a lot of big conversations is what I'm saying. And I know him because he's done so much other stuff. And of course, he was on the Brady Bunch and everything. There's a little bit of that. Like, I know who that guy is. And then Colleen, sure, 
shortly after the show started, we did a con, WonderCon, I believe it was. It was in Los Angeles, so we were all going to drive there. They did a big panel with the Naruto people. I think it was 2006. Anyway, they were doing a whole Naruto panel, and we were going to ride down together, Robbie, Colleen, and I. At the last minute, Robbie changed his plan. So Colleen and I rode down about an hour drive from Los Angeles down to where the convention was. And we talked the whole way. I was very pleasant, wrote, you know, rode back together, did the con, did the panel, signed some autographs, did that kind of thing. And it was really interesting because here we had been sort of working together, but we never really worked together. And I've run into her maybe a couple of times since then, but that's about it. It's a very strange profession in that way because you don't really hang out with people. You're in the booth, you do your thing, you work with the director, and you go home. It's weird because we all have these individual experiences that collectively is this show. And I do want to continue talking about this because it's interesting because Naruto has a two and a half year time skip and everybody becomes older and they're now starting to enter that 14 and a half, 15, 16 range. So what was that like to start to really get to play a more mature Shikumaru? And a lot of shit happens in part two of Naruto. Yeah. I liked the time shift that moved into Shippuden because that's, I think, when they came into their own. That's when you really start to see them do stuff. Before it was little kid stuff in a way. And also I wasn't in it as much. But then when we came back, Shikamaru was head of his own team. We went out to save Sasuke, was the first failed mission. People got hurt. That was a big thing. And then, of course, the death of Asuma. And we went after the Akatsuki. That was dark. That was where Shikamaru really grew up in that period of time. And I wouldn't say he was a main role at that point, but he was obviously not a supportive role anymore. Yeah, it was more like going from guest star to co-star. You know, you come in, be like, uh, oh, there's that Naruto kid. He's obnoxious or annoying. And there was a bunch of them. We all kind of had little different things. But then they really ratcheted up and gave Shikamaru more and more to work with and more leadership sort of roles. Even to now, because now in Boruto, Shikamaru is running the show as far as he's the right-hand man to the Hokage. I guess if it was the government, he'd be the Secretary of Defense. It's actually even more than that because he's helping run the village and the whole thing. And it's like they've put that mind to work. And so I've really always loved this character. It's just the evolution of it, the whole thing. It could have been so easily just the side character that was too cool for school, I guess would be the sort of attitude. Like, whatever, you know, nobody cares. And it really clicked in because Naruto is the opposite of that. He's like, dive in, ask questions later. He's all passion. He leaps before he looks. And Shikamaru is completely opposite of that. He's very calm, cool, doesn't want to get involved if he doesn't have to, not my problem. So it's a real nice contrast. And especially now, those two characters have gone on beyond the original show, which is really nice. So it's been very nice for me. It's been 15 years. So in a way, they don't grow up very fast. You had a two-year break. They grew up a little bit. And it's like, well, it took us 15 years to do all that. In real time, these are 30-year-old people now. In the show, they're only in their early 20s. or So it's fun. And speaking about 15 years and one of the cherries on top, at least the way I view it and other people view it similar and people might disagree with me on this. And feel free to, by the way, is that Shikumaru had a light novel about him. And it's like a 140-page book, and that was animated. And so that's out there. And I don't know all the details in the work, but that's kind of like a bonus thing with Naruto. So how does that make you feel knowing that this character even has beyond development that hasn't been explored? Or maybe it has been, and even coming into Boruto, to add on to the question is getting to reprise him even when he's even older. And as you stated, sort of the secretary of defense role or in the cabinet, if you will. 
Well, I'd not heard about the side project. And you said it was animated, so it was released like a special or like a movie? or Almost like an OVA, if I recall. So anyway, I've not heard anything about it. I haven't been contacted about it. I'd love to do it. It'd be interesting if they're going to do it. It kind of depends on, I guess, Viz Media, if they think they can incorporate it somehow. And then as far as Shikamaru being part of the cabinet now... I think it's awesome. There's a few actors that love what they do and they take it very seriously. And then there's other actors that are just like, it's a job and what's the name of the character and what this? And I think I'm more in the category of, I love my character. I'm very involved in it. I'm interested in it. It reminds me of an analogy, George Takei, who was Sulu in Star Trek. And when they did the sequel films, they wanted to bring the old crew back together. And he was like, Sulu would have gone on. He wouldn't be a navigator. He would have maybe be captaining his own ship. And they're like, yeah, but that doesn't work for our script. And he's like, well, I'm not necessarily going to come back unless Sulu has been taken care of. And they eventually made it kind of a subplot where Sulu has his own ship. Because you got to think these characters have progressed. The series ended a certain amount of time period and every character has growth and done other things. They wouldn't have stayed in the same position that they were in. And it makes total sense. I really think that was a cool thing for him to do, like to stand up for his character and say, he would have progressed. What is he now? Wouldn't that be interesting for the audience? And it was. And it worked. It was great that he was captain and he had his own ship and he was part of the plot. I think that was Wrath of Khan was he got to flex those muscles a little bit. And I thought, that's fantastic. And I know that it kind of came from him. Not that anything from this show comes from us because it's originally done in Japan and we just do the English version of it. I think for Naruto, it's really interesting because this is the boy who always wanted to be Okage. Now what happens when you get what you want? When you get everything you want... What is that like? You know, we always think, well, it's going to be roses and sunshine. And this is my whole life I spent doing this. And then when you get there, you realize, oh, this is a whole other thing that has a whole different array of challenges. And he's trying to balance his family life and his work life and his responsibility. And I think that's really an interesting dynamic. What happens to the guy who got everything? It's cool to see that played out in a very dramatic way. That works for me. And now I don't want to ruin Boruto. It's going strong. But there is the other side of Naruto, and that's the video games. And you get the boy Shikamaru in the video games. What is that like briefly? So I don't want to spend massive time just destroying that sector. Do you think I'm destroying the series right now by talking bad about Naruto? (laughs) Just to be clear, I think Naruto is a great character. I know Miley very well. And I'm sure she'd be like, I'm not a terrible dad just the way I go. I'm not lazy. I'm going to brand as the guy who ruined Naruto, you and me uh, both. which I'm not. The video games are real different. I like the ones where they go after like a storyline that we're doing. A lot of times you're doing the same dialogue that you would do in the show and you're following along those lines. But for the most part, I gotta say, it's very technical and they break it way down into little pieces. So it'll be like, ready player one. Okay, say that five different times in the voice. Ready player one. Good selection. Ready player one. And so you do all these different variations of that. And then it's now you're getting punched in the stomach. So you go, okay, give me three different ones. Now you're jumping. You do it like that and screaming, punched in the face. They'll have it all broken down. You lost the fight. You're dead. Things like that. So you have to make all these sounds. And the one thing I really like about the video games, it's a different pay rate for some reason. It's like when they say you're doing a video game, it's like, wow, that's fantastic. Because it's about the same amount of time for a session, but it's probably triple what we make for a session. It's really such easy money, but it's not easy, but it's fun. I'll happily do video games. The money's great. And it's not huge money. It's not go buy a car money. But for a day's work, it's pretty 
pretty good. But you scream, you scream, and you scream, and you scream, because it's all battle sequences. So a lot of the dialogue is attack, shadow possession jutsu at the top of your lungs and all that kind of stuff. So it can be very taxing in that regard. But it's only a couple hours, and you go in, pretty easy to do. You're not matching picture, so you basically just say the line the way you want to say it, and they take it, and it's great. They make it work. So that's a big difference from when you're trying to do it for the series, where they have to match it up to the existing flaps. So that is kind of a nice advantage. Just to be clear, too, back in the old days, when I was talking about how we had to make it fit before Pro Tools, that was like the big difference between original animation and dubbing, or what we do with the anime. And people didn't quite realize that it's a completely different skill and it is skill based it's all very technical whereas you go in for an original animated movie or you go in for an original animated series they'll say say the line and you say it and then the director says okay i think he's a little bit more angry so you say it that way and then once you and the director decide that's the line you want to do move on to the next line which is great you can take all the time you want well not all the time but if you want to say it slow or fast or up or down or whatever you want to do it you can kind of do it and that's what they do and then they send it off to be animated and they animate around the way you did the line that everybody could agree on was the best line for that scene. So in a way, then to come in and have to do a character, all the things, you know, find a voice, get a character, figure out the attitude, the moment, what's happening before, what's happening after, all the acting stuff, and then go, now say it in two and a half seconds. Now say it a little bit quicker. Now say it a little bit slow. Now make it fit. So in a way, to me, it was like I came up learning that. So to me, I feel like that's a huge asset because now that stuff doesn't throw me in the booth. I was never very good at it, just to let you know. There are people that you say two and a half seconds, they know exactly what two and a half seconds is. I'm kind of going by feel and I go, I think that's about right. And then sometimes you're in there and sometimes you're not, but you start to kind of get a sense of what they're looking for and how it's going to fit. And you kind of adapt to that. But there are people that are geniuses at that, like can lay it down and go, give me three and a half seconds. And they go, boom, boom, boom. And then there it is. And it'll be three and a half seconds on the dot. That's crazy skills. Those people are phenomenal. But it's a very technical aspect. But also, if you're a good actor and you're very technical, you can work a lot. These days, though, you don't need that technical as much. And so I think you can get away with having a lot of sort of non-actors or non-technical actors do it. That's why you see a lot more of celebrities. I just went off and did a animated whatever because they asked me to, not because you had any chops in the animated world. We liked you for your name so we could put it on the poster, that kind of thing. And I think we're going to end with Naruto there. And I want to touch on four roles really quickly. And I think one of the most famous ones is Takumi Nomiya from Honey and Clover, as well as you've done two roles from Bosso Rankin. And I'm not familiar with that one, but you've also done Utah Fuji from Prince of Tennis. So I had done an episode of Digimon. I think I did Shinzo at that point. And then from there, I got Honey and Clover. I think that was around the same time. What I thought was fun about that is this is like acting on 90210 back in the day or something. That's what that show is. And Prince of Tennis is very much the same way too. Both of those shows could have just been, you could have cast live actors and shot that show. And it could have been on television like a series. But that's the beauty of Japanese anime is that they can take stories and they were about young people. And anime is considered just as legitimate of an art form to tell that story as doing it as a live action type of a situation. But those kind of stories, you could just get a teenage cast and find a school in a location and shoot it. And I'll bet it would be pretty popular. That's what I thought was really great is that it's not cartoony. Naruto is a little different because there's so much fighting and action. If you did a live action, 
it could be very cheesy, so you got to be careful because it could turn into like the Power Rangers kind of a thing. So in a way, it lives in anime. It gets to be serious and it gets to be fanciful at the same time. But with Prince of Tennis and Honey and Clover, Marmalade Boy... Daphne. Those are like soap operas. Those are like Degrassi Junior High type of shows that could have been done either way. Those are really just acting roles, which were fantastic. And at the time, you know, I was past my teens when I did them. So it was sort of like, oh, these are roles that I never would have got to play as an actor. Partly because I'm kind of short and a little chubby. And here I am playing kind of a studly tennis pro guy, rich kid on Prince of Tennis, who's got a little bit of an attitude and sort of entitled. And it's like fantastic because I would never get cast at that. So that was a lot of fun to play. And they're interesting characters and it's well written. So I'm actually surprised when people say they've seen it because I know you can get it on DVD, but I don't know where it ever really gets to run or where people get exposure to it. But I'm always happy when I run into somebody who's seen it and appreciates it, enjoys it. And the one we're going to end on as far as your rules, and it's more modern and people should see it. I think if they have Amazon Prime, they get to see it for free. It's Cabanari of the Iron Fortress as Sukari. Yes, it's fantastic. It is basically zombies on a train. It's the apocalypse. We have a train. The survivors are on this train. What was the movie that was out? Snowpiercer? Well, yeah, Snowpiercer. It's like that. Like, it's the end of days. <laughs> Except they're surrounded by zombies. We're on this train. We got to keep this train running. And that's my character is an engineer. Keep the train running. Keep it going. That's his whole thing. There's a team of engineers. We're the secondary characters. We keep the train going, keep everything going. But my character, he's all in it for himself. He cares about numero uno, and that's it. If his survival means you don't make it on the train, that train's leaving the station. <laughs> there is no hero in this guy. I shouldn't say that completely but he's very self-serving which i think you almost have to be in the apocalypse but i love it that's a really dark fun show and not to date you but this is the new age of anime where this is very much a digital distributed show versus the dvds or even how it's recorded in the wild west when you came into anime how do you feel about that and what is that like for you to have lived through i guess the wild west as i describe it and other people have described it that way. And then this nice, peaceful, almost utopia way that things are distributed without a mess. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Going back a little bit, I think Prince of Tennis. I came in and I said, oh, they're doing this show. It's called Prince of Tennis. And I go, oh, where is it going to be? Where is it going to show? And where on television is it going to be on Cartoon Network? Or what are we doing with it? And at that time, they had a lot of anime on Cartoon Network. But they're like, no, this is going to go right to the website. I was like, really? And people are going to watch it on their computers? This was 2006. And that was kind of a big thing. It was like, yeah, we're going to put this show up on the website. And I was like, wow, that is weird. And for an actor, it's also like, well, what does that mean for like residuals? And I mean, the unions, there's a certain amount of royalty. The way they figure it out is to pay you as little as possible. You get paid a little extra when it goes to DVD. You might get a residual check in the mail if they're going to do something with it, if it's going to re-air. It's very minor. But I just didn't know how that would work if you put something straight up on the website. And it really didn't matter because what they tend to do is even with the ones that air, they air and then it'll go to DVD and then it'll go online. It'll go to some streaming thing like Netflix or whatever. And they're never going to air it on television again. So you never really see see the residual on it so we're sort of the redheaded stepchild of acting and of the union the union treats it as a completely different thing like if you do original animation the union looks at it as you'll get a sag day rate but if you do dubbing they give you a dubbing rate which is a lot lower and then you're only there for a couple hours and i think it's a minimum of two is what they 
have to pay you for. But it's a huge difference between a SAG day rate and then that dubbing rate. Because the way they look at it is you're basically translating it as if I'm just reading them. So that instead of having it translated on the screen with words underneath the picture, I'm just saying it over. And if you think about it, the old cliche of old dubbed movies and stuff, that's the way they used to do it. It was literally like, hey, come here, Godzilla's coming. Oh, I see him. They're basically just reading the script so that you get an idea of what's supposed to be going on because you don't speak Japanese. And so they treat it like as if you're not acting. And sort of the point I made before was you're acting, you're making it fit, you're coming up with a character, you're making it sustain, and you don't have the freedom to deliver that line the way you would if it was an original animation. You're constricted to doing it in three and a half seconds or six seconds or nine seconds or whatever the length of it is. So you can't take a pause if there isn't a flap in your mouth. You can't hesitate on a word or hold something like to give it strength or meaning. So to me, it's a double acting skill. And the way the union treats it, you're basically just translating it to English. That's it. And it's like, oh, it's not really the way it is. This leads right into what I'm about to ask, because that's kind of an honest, real perception of it. And that's good to know. And I think people want to know, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, what advice do you have for people who want to get into acting and voice acting? Because you are an actor who does a lot of voice acting. The first thing I would say, the reason to do it is because you're passionate about it. And that's it. Don't do it because you want to make money. Don't do it because you want to be famous. The only reason you should do it is because you think it's interesting and you think you have something to contribute. And then those other things may come out of it, but I wouldn't go into it expecting any of that. And then the other thing is education. I'm a huge proponent of that. Take an acting class, take an improv class, take a voiceover class, go to school, train yourself as an actor, be comfortable on stage. Every actor should be able to do voiceover and they should be able to do musicals and they should be able to do a little bit of dance if they're called on it. They should try and make yourself as versatile as possible. Like in college, that's kind of what we did. So you do a little bit of Shakespeare. You may not like it, but at least you're familiar with it. So if you ever get challenged with that somewhere down the road, you know what to do. The same way with how to get through if you're going to be in a musical. Try and make your voice, your instrument the best that it can be and as versatile as possible so you can work as much as you can. And then there's little things you can do just even reading out loud. Get a mic. Mics are pretty inexpensive. With a computer setup, it's not too crazy, but if you already have a computer. And then just try and record your voice and listen to your voice and read from the newspaper, read a book, just talk on mic. And for anime and things that we do, you can even get them on YouTube now where they'll have the words below it, the subtitles, and you can even try and lay down your own track and put in your own voice in there and try and do a little bit of editing yourself. And just saying for practice, I'm not saying try and distribute it with a different voice or anything like that. If you feel like you're getting up to speed, then try and pursue it even a little bit more. And that, I can't tell you how to break in. But I think with YouTube and things like that these days, there's a lot of opportunity, especially if you want to do your own animation and you want to do your own stuff. I think there's a lot of opportunity to get other people to see it. Now, whether it becomes a hit or not, or you get a thousand followers or a million followers or 10 million likes, I don't know. But that's basically the way it is with all of us. You don't know what's going to hit. I didn't know which shows I was on that were going to be big hits and which ones were going to be like, eh. And I've been on plenty that were just like, eh, it didn't really catch fire for whatever reason. So I think if you put yourself out there, it's so easy these days with very limited tools to produce your own stuff. And like I said, it may not be anything. Nobody may like it or appreciate it. 
the more you do, the better you'll get, the more you make, then you'll start building an audience. That's such a great thing. Like before I met Jeff Nimoy, there was nothing I could do. Try and get a voiceover agent, maybe lay down a demo track, spend a ton of money to do that, and then see what happens or what doesn't happen. For the most part, things don't happen. But you get lucky and you meet people that you can work with. And this is very important too. have a good work ethic. Show up on time. If you tell someone you're going to help them out, help them out. Don't say, oh, turns out I had to work. I can't record your video today. If you said you're going to record your video, do it. Or if you can't, be honest and be respectful of people's time and energy. Be pleasant on set. Don't try and fight with people all the time. You know, listen, try and understand what people are trying to accomplish and help them accomplish what they're trying to do. And then they in turn can help you accomplish what you're trying to do. And it becomes a very big collaboration. And I think these are all things that we can do, especially in this day and age when you have the access to the Internet and you can really do a lot of stuff. And who knows, something could just catch fire, go viral. And next thing you know, they're going to give you a ton of money to produce your own cartoon or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And who knows, right? And in the meantime, it's experience. You can just keep building that resume, just keep doing more and more stuff. And then the universe will tell you whether this is something you should be doing or not. The only reason to do it is if you're passionate about it. And if you're not passionate about it, you won't succeed. That's basically it in a nutshell. I think if you're in it for money and fame, that's tough. I don't think that's going to be very satisfying. I think there's going to be a lot more disappointment if you're looking for that. If it happens, great, good, fantastic. But if it doesn't, they can't be it. So I've babbled on long enough, but that's sort of my two cents. And then finally, I'd like to give you an opportunity to professionally promote yourself. Do you have a fan page on Facebook, <laughs> a fan Twitter, a website that people can find your roles or know where your next role is coming out? or where it will be announced? Unfortunately, I really don't. I'm really bad at that. The social media era sort of skipped me because you pointed out before um, how old I am. But kids today, I think, are really good at it and they should pursue that. That can help you a lot with this business. It's just one of those things that I'm just not really great at. And yeah, and I just kind of work job to job to job and I don't do a ton of stuff. I'm not the most working voice over actor. I do have a day job. I work for a production company. But I think building that, that's very important to people today as far as like the people that will cast you and put you in things is having a online footprint and presence and followers and all that. And I'm just really bad at it. That's basically it. what it boils down to. <laughs> well, at this point, I'd like to thank Tom Gibbons for being on because I just completed 75% of Team 10 and it's been one of my bucket list items for the last two years since I started this podcast four years ago and ever since I did Colleen Oshaganasi, who plays Inno, she plays Tails and Sonic the Hedgehog. Also, in case you want to know, there's a funny story with her and Kate Higgins. Go look it up. It's a great story. But anyhow, as always, thank you for listening, everybody, to the podcast and we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitch Radio and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode, you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime comics and pop culture, as well as give us a follow on Twitter at Pop Anime Comics. Like my Facebook page, Pop Anime Comics. I need the follow on Twitter and the like on Facebook. You can check out my Instagram. A lot of cool Pop Funkos and comic book stuff up there. As well as I do have a pro wrestling t-shirt shop. It is an elf holding a steel chair. She looks like Leafa combined with Zelda. And she has a chair. It's on ProWrestlingTees.com. In the search bar, type Pop Anime Comics in there. And you can find it. Please buy it because she does not want to come to your house. Hate you with the steel chair repeatedly until she drags you to your computer and types it in herself and then makes you buy the shirt it would be much simpler for everybody involved if you just buy the shirt at the comfort of your own house without any violence being associated with it and until next week everybody have a wonderful week